Okay, well, uh, it's been a day or two or so. Uh, I mentioned I was looking for the book Why I Am Not a Buddhist by Evan Thompson. Uh, I had actually found his Waking Dreaming Being book already. Uh, read it, uh, thinking maybe that uh, Why I'm Not a Buddhist might be a little different. As I said, the little clips that I got of it, eh, neither here nor there. So I've completed reading the books, and let's, I thought it'd be simple. I could actually probably just read a sentence, and you yourself can go and read so I'm in the, the final chapter of Waking, Dreaming, Being. It's a little more, I think, uh, clear on where he comes from. So he's just finished talking about a state of equanimity, uh, where he says, a pre-attentive sense of mindness completely disappears. So what he's talking about is arguably the third jhana. Third jhana uh, is where we can actually, so sorry, uh, initially we start with the breath, the body of uh, sila, morality. Once we're able to effortlessly focus on our breath or just arguably understand the dependent origination of things, therefore the cause and effect. So we're not deluded by some of these more mundane aspects. Arguably of the first five of uh, these consciousness, eyes, nose, ears. And this is what he's talking about here. So he goes and talks about that, and, and I'll quote, I see no reason to deny the possibility of such states. So these are these states when you have been able to become what you would call satipatipati. You're able to implement sati, sati to remember. But it requires sampajana, which is reminding yourself to be, to reside, to be resident in mindfulness. That's why the fourth jhana is called essentially uh, to reside in equanimity and mindfulness, right? So once you're able to manage these sense factors, it's time to start working on the mind, right? That sixth, that sixth factor. You, you progress through the jhanas. Once you reach the third jhana, actually, is when you start to experience uh, equanimity, rupeka. That's that silencing of the mindness. That's that ex experience that he's talking about, right? Because the self is, we've talked about this endlessly, um, and we're going to get to the fact, uh, an example of why I don't really recommend uh, these books. Uh, Evan Thompson, by the way, uh, he considers himself a scientist on the nature of self. So here he's saying, well, you know, he will not deny the possibility of such states, but he does. He, uh, but well, I'm going to quote directly. But I do see reason to deny that they show that there is no self, or that I, me, mine—that's a term that he uses—that or that I, me, mine thoughts are intrinsic, intrinsically mistaken. 
And he goes on and says, what they do show is that there can be experiences in which no sense of self is present. But the absence of a sense of self in some experiences doesn't logically imply that there is no self or that I, me, mind thoughts are intrinsically incorrect. On the contrary, if the self is a construction, then it shouldn't, then we should expect that it could be dismantled, even while some of its constituent processes, uh, such as bare sentience or phenomenal consciousness, remain present. To put it another way, given that the self is a process and not a substantial thing, it may be possible to shut down this process under certain conditions and then start it up again. Hmm. So in this chapter, he's gone on and explained the Yogacara's uh, position on the self, which is essentially what he agrees with. He's saying the self is a process, and that's what he's just explained here. But he doesn't seem to understand, because he also talks about Chantrakirti, which is another way of seeing the self. The way they see it is the self is wholly, dependently originated, therefore doesn't exist. Yet we're back to the Chetaskoti again. But we're seeing someone who supposedly was raised in Buddhism, Tibetan even, and doesn't seem to understand how this works. He's even paid as a, a f- philosopher or a professor of the self, yet he doesn't understand it. So we've talked about this uh, Svatantrika Prasangika distinction. Right? We have one side that says, well, it's dependently originated, the self, so we really can't discuss because it, you know, doesn't exist. The other side says, well, it, it, it's born and dies away. Remember, this idea of citta, matra, yogacara, talks about mind only, therefore it's born in the mind. This is why I mentioned these um, first five. It's the simplest to understand. The first five minds, say your mind of smell, when you smell something, that gives birth to a citta, a mind. And in the Yogacara sense, again, as I said, even says he, Evan says he, he, um, he agrees with their perception. That's just one aspect, this smell consciousness. Then you have your sixth the mind consciousness, but that's not enough for them. They go one step further and they explain that you have latent um, uh, impressions like the, the Hindus and the Gitas would mention. They call it the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. So you have preferences, right? When you smell that, whatever it might be, you have a preference or, okay, let's say you have uh, an attachment or an aversion. Right? So this ignorance, there's the third of these three poisons, that ignorance is understanding the truth of the self. So what is the distinction? One side says that everything is dependently originated, therefore the self is as well. Meaning, it's born of the smell, the attachment to the smell, the latent impressions or the, you know these these preferences you might have in your storehouse consciousness. That's what produces this self. So they feel the self doesn't exist because it's dependently originated or more simply, you give birth to it and it dies away in every interaction with the senses, with the mind, with the uh, storehouse consciousness. The other side, the Yogacaran side says, well, it is a process, same as Evan believes. It is a process, but that doesn't mean 
anything of what he says makes sense. So they say that the self is simply a construct. And I laugh really hard in one of his sentences where he said, um, some illusions are constructs, but not all constructs are illusions or constructions. That doesn't tell us anything. Some things are blue and not all things are red. That doesn't tell us anything. But what makes it worse is he'll say he sees a reason to deny that they show there is no self. He himself says this, if the self is a process, then there is no self. He himself said that you can't separate the self from aggregates. And if you can't do that, then the self is dependently originated. But again, he believes in the Yogacara, that it's a process. So it's born and dies away in each interaction. Therefore, there is no independent, um, standalone self. But nowhere do we deny the existence of self. In fact, I was going to be so boring as to read you some... um, read you some uh, Vasubandhu. Uh, I mean, I don't have to go too deeply into this. I just have to read the first verse. So I recommend that if you want to understand the nature of self as it relates to Yogacara, I would uh, read uh, what they call in English the 30 verses uh, by, Vishu, uh, <laughs> by Vasubandhu. Um, uh, 30 verses on the conscious life, or it's the uh, Trimsika Vijnapa, Vijnapti, Vijnapti, Trimshika Vijnapi of Vishubandhu, Vasubandhu. I mean, it's, oh God, it's terrible when you, uh, you speak more than one language, you have a speech impediment and you're dyslexic, I gotta tell you. <laughs> but I don't memorize this stuff. Uh, I want to understand the meanings so I can get the message. And I'll give you one major example. So this gentleman keeps talking about that he's an expert in the nature of self. He says he agrees with, but not wholly, the Yogacara sense. So why don't we go to the Yogacara? And as I said, I don't memorize this stuff. I just want to understand it. So in verse 1, his basic thesis, this is the basis of Yogacara philosophy. It opens with a particular word, a compound word, atta dharmo pakaro. It's important because that one word breaks down to self and nature are both upakara, upakara. And what does that mean? Self and nature, if you look at what it means, it's moving for a sense which is near about. Or the same as. Both of those senses make us understand self and nature. So the idea of self is not it doesn't exist. It's strictly dependent (laughs) on whether we attach to it, uh, of course, but also our need to interact with the different aggregates. We label the self. And this is pretty simple and I'll explain it later in these verses. But dupakara also means the same as. Self, nature, others, same as, right? As I've used an example, if you take your glass of water and pour it back into the reservoir and take yourself another cup of water, 
it is your cup of water. It looks the same, but it is not the same cup of water. Right? So that's the nature of self. And, and I'll go so far as to jump to the final, I guess. It's going to go through more than just the first and last. Um, maybe not. Wait a minute. All right, yeah, well, why not here? So in verse 7, it's talking about the, uh, the super mundane path. It talks about that it's getting ready to self. Right? The seventh consciousness ends in three cases. When the afflictions end, when cessation is made real, naroda, of both substantial self and substantial nature, and when the mind stream has awakened. Right? And he goes on and talks about the different um, yogacara minds. But if you just uh, jump down, the manovajnana, oh, I jumped too far, my apologies. So if you look at verse 6, my apologies, it talks about um, the self's always accompanied by four afflictions, defiled but morally indeterminate, meaning, that, again, this is known as the view of self, delusion of self, pride of self, and love of self. So again, these four afflictions, right? our goal, our end goal, is not to eliminate. right? Because again, it doesn't say, um, doesn't exist. It says defiled, but morally indeterminate. What that means is, it's wrong, defiled, it's wrong, it's just the wrong view. Defiled as in dirty, as in unhealthy. Morally indeterminate. Meaning, it's not good, it's not bad. So what are these views of self? Again, Yogacara, at the very heart of it, is the teaching on self. That is the goal, to work on the self. I find it funny that he brings up Yogacara and has such a limited grasp on uh, what they, uh, they, well, what they believe. So the view of self represents the actual false conceptual overlay or superposition involved. One grasps at oneself as existing independently and separately from the rest of the world. Nowhere does it say that the self doesn't exist, or um, arguably, what was the other thing he said here? Or that I, me, mine thoughts are intrinsically mistaken. Again, we're not saying they're intrinsically mistaken. We're saying that they are defiled when, and I'll go through the other, all four, when you look at all four of these afflictions, but they are morally indeterminate. So just meaning, you know, you should see them as they are, not, you know, what did he say? Intrinsically mistaken, right? Meaning, he means that any view of self is wrong. We're saying the wrong view of self is wrong. Not that it doesn't exist, just the wrong view. And those wrong views, or the four afflictions attached to self in Yogacara, is verse 6 of the 30 verses of Vasubandhu. First is the view of self, as I said. This view initiates the process of ignorance, right? Your unconscious is automatic and is reinforced by the conscious, the conventional education. Without this wrong view, there is no samsaric mind. So, 
Here it's talking about your upper levels, the mana, vijnana, uh, the mano vijnana, the mana, and the alaya vijnana. So you have those latent impressions and then you attach to them. And lastly, it's talking about without this wrong view, right? Without this attachment to self or a lack of outflows, without, with all these outflows, this wrong view, you have to deal with the samsaric world, the dharma, right? Nature. So because you attach to the wrong view of self, you must deal with nature as, once again, incorrectly perceived. So the second of the four afflictions is delusion of self. This is the actual sense of independent and separate selfhood resulting from the view. This is the psychological experience of existing as a person, existing from its own side. This is delusional because under critical analysis, and he mentions Nagarjuna, such a substantial self cannot be found. So it doesn't matter whether you look at it as the self in kind of the Abhidharma sense um, is made up of a bunch of little minds that are born and die away. So your ear chitta, your ear consciousness, your nose consciousness, all these ideas, born and die away, or they're dependently originated, meaning um, you believe yourself because of your proximity to others. Uh, you know, you feel it's your hand, it's your skin, you know, your bag of water, but it's my water. And that takes us to the next, is the pride of self ensues from the delusion of self, contrary to the delusion of self, which is a conscious but passive false ideation. Again, that's the construct, a passive false ideation, meaning it's not malevolent, but it's morally, you know, morally... uh, like a conscientious objector. <laughs> so here the ego thinks itself as unique, standing out, acts accordingly, causing reinforcing negative karma. Now in this case, they're talking about action, but also the latent impressions. They tend to mention seeds of karma in that uh, alaya vijnana or the mano vijnana, right? This... Um, um, preference, aversion, and attachment are these seeds that you lay down yourself. It considers its own volitions. Again, this is this idea of the mind attaches to the nose consciousness. So you're smelling something. The mind attaches to it. Then you have volitions and go, oh, do I like that smell or dislike that smell or it reminds me of this or I wish I had that. That's your volitions. And it goes on, affects thoughts and reflections as of first importance and understands the other as a uh, function of itself, something to be used and abused. It owns its objects and is convinced of its self-importance. Right? So that's exactly, I kind of explained it when I mentioned volitions, right? That idea that you're a different bag of water from the other bags of water, right? And lastly, in this idea of the four afflictions of self, is the love of self or self-cherishing, right? It's the culmination of this mental error of self-information rooted in this wrong view and the delusion of self. Once again, it doesn't say the no-self. It doesn't say the, um, 
the entire uh, concept of self, I, me, mine, is incorrect or what have you. What did he pardon me with having to constantly go back? Intrinsically mistaken. Right? The needs of the self are attended to before considering others. Considered as radically different and alien. Self and others are not equalized. Quite on the contrary. Both are differentiated as much as possible, affirming the unique character of the self and the context with which it identifies, family, friends, nation, right? Any label. This self is protected before anything else. And I've talked about this, that the self is not only a defense mechanism, but it also defends itself, right? From this attempt to override this misperception, misconception, misconstrued reality. And finally, it goes on and says, the other becomes a subservient entity to be manipulated, right? The self is protected before anything else, as I said, and as I said, it protects itself. And it goes on and says, the other becomes a subservient entity to be manipulated Instrumental and strategic action prevails and true symmetrical communication is absent, right? It means, uh, I guess you would say reciprocity, right? A true understanding. So once again, instrumental and strategic action prevails, right? Thinking, again, in this case, instrumental to the self, strategic for the self. Again, we go back to this idea of the Noble Eightfold Path. Is it right? Is it correct? Is it uh, well-intentioned? So you become subservient to this entity, this construct, and even manipulated. It's instrumental and strategic, of course, but it puts its importance and its own strategy ahead of the true, balanced, symmetrical, madhyamaka, middle way of a communication So once again, we're not saying it doesn't exist. We're talking about establishing a proper, balanced relationship. Well, we'll go on. For Vasubandhu, the wrong view of self is the root error to be eradicated by the path. Ending this uninterrupted, catastrophic activity of the seventh consciousness, that Alaya Vijnana, is the sole purpose of the extended analysis of mind. Indeed, on the basis of this, the samsaric mind affirms the substantial nature of others too. In this way, desubstantiating both self and others becomes the aim, initiated by cutting through the ignorance, causing the wrong view of self. So finally, clearly says that our job is to cut through this misperception of self, which blocks us off from true upeka, upeksha, equanimity, right? Because as it says, it is this basis, this basis of self, this uninterrupted catastrophic activity of the seventh consciousness is, right, Indeed, on this basis, the samsaric mind affirms the substantial nature of others as well. 
Reaffirming itself, obviously. In this way, desubstantializing both self and others becomes the aim. So that sentence alone, desubstantializing. So it's breaking down the component parts. So absolutely, it's funny that a professor of the self will talk about the self is a process, yet will argue that Buddhism is wrong in its perception of the self, yet the Buddhist perception of the self is as a process. So who's perpetrating the fraud, right? (laughs) I've mentioned this, this lack of sufficiency. It almost seems like a shell game. But desubstantiating both the self and others becomes the aim, right? Cutting through the ignorance, causing the wrong view of self, not that self doesn't exist. It's the wrong view of self. And again, I love that it clearly states again that um, this is seen as the absolute epitome of the goal. Uh, I like... The, the verse 7, just the one word, Naroda Sama Patva, which would be the attainment of cessation, right? The ultimate attainment. Well, Naroda for cessation, Sama for best or perfect or ultimate, and Patu as a path or an attainment of in an idea. So that would be the path of attainment of ultimate Cessation. And in this case, like I said, they see it as um, an elimination of the self. Uh, and I love that they use something similar to, remember I mentioned early on, the sati, patipati, or sati, samapati. And here we get into naroda, samapati, which is our goal. But what is it we're trying to cease? We're trying to cease the grasping, what they call self-grasping. That's what the manas mean. Right? Once we were able to stop grasping, not that the self doesn't exist, but either, depending on how you see it, either each time you have an experience, you attach to it and differentiate yourself from others, or each time you confuse the nature of self and forget that it's dependently arisen. So the self that you are right now, well, nope, you're not them anymore, right? Eh, nope, not you anymore again. You're, you're reborn every single moment. So there is no resident self. Again, this truth of impermanence is not meant to be a, a prison, It's meant to be a liberation, right? You can't attach to something that is already gone. And you can't be averse to something that will come and go. And that's the entire E. Uh, You can go on. There's actually a number more verses. Like I said, I've only gone uh, to verse, uh, what is this, 7. It's interesting because verse 7 talks about how this works, right? That it builds upon itself. But at the height of this Suffering and delusion lies this self, right? This delusion of self. Not that the self exists per se, but also not that it doesn't exist. As I've said since the very beginning, and I thought this was such a weird heretical belief, that the mind itself is both the greatest barrier and 
um, tool to our liberation. I mean, that same can be said for the self. That's what I'm talking about. When I say the mind, I'm not strictly talking about the sixth consciousness or even about the seventh or the eighth. I mean, there's the ninth, the tenth, and the eleventh that we haven't even discussed. So when I talk about the mind, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about us, this idea. It's so sad that a bag of fatted water inside of our uh, calcium-constructed, carbon-based vessel can be mistaken for something so unique, one of a kind. It is an opportunity. But I think, like Nietzsche said, we would be the ubermensch if weren't for our baser desires. And that's... I believe what Nietzsche was talking about, right? Because this is what the Buddhists are talking about, right? We can be powerful, iddi. We can follow this simple path of being mindful, but of what? Of the fact that we need... I love the fact, and it still hasn't left me, that quote by a quantum physicist. And again, I will agree with Evan when he says that you can't use science to prove uh, Buddhism. But if you're using science to prove truths to human nature, that's a different story. Again, but the mistake follows if you believe anything to be an absolute truth. Did we just not talk about impermanence? The truth of existence is impermanence. Therefore, both any thought system, and even science is strictly a holding game. For what? To learn, right? Because truth is a moving target. It's evolving, just like everything else. But that's my take.